Hi, I'm Molly Moran, and this is the Table Wine Podcast. As always, I am joined by my esteemed co-host, Andy Stoiber. Hi. Hello, Molly. Hi, Andy. How are you? I am doing well. I'm a little sleepy today. It is a sleepy day in Wisconsin. It's rainy, wet, and I just stayed up too late and had to get up too early. It's very dreary. So I feel you. We were talking earlier today about the fact that we are both Libras. I think we talked about this on the last episode. We are deep into Libra season now. Andy's birthday is fast approaching. Indeed, it is. We don't want to turn this podcast into a full astrology thing, but... I don't have it is much fun. to say. <laughs> I think there's a sense of, <laughs> but you had mentioned earlier when we were a person at the shop that we're all Libra. There's another Libra around mm-hmm. and there's a sense of camaraderie between Libras as I think there probably is any sign. And however artificial that is, it's still meaningful. And I also have a lot of good friends that are Libras. Like the Libra thing correlates to who I associate with. Yeah. Um, I remember reading when I was young who you should partner with. You know, like what sign? Who should you partner with? What is it? What astrological signs you should partner with? And then like if I met somebody who wasn't one of those signs, I was like, oh, we can't make out because you're a Capricorn. (laughs) We can't make out. Yeah, like that's what I mean. Like in high school, I was like, "Mm, you're a Sagittarius. I don't know. I don't know if this is going to ever work out. I think a lot of people do that. What is your partner's astrological sign, Andy? He's a Taurus and he's real into Uh, astrologies. And definitely looked up our compatibility right after we started dating. Yeah. And I, Tauruses and Libras aren't the most compatible. They're not like the perfect thing. There's like perfect matches, right? Yeah. I, I don't think we're bad at a match. I've been with my husband for, God, we started dating in the last millennium. <laughs> so, and he is a Leo. And I believe that that's the perfect match. So the way that. I think astrology comes up in my life most now is that I follow some astrology-based Instagram accounts, Mm -hmm. which I think are extremely popular. I mean, these people, like, they're, like, hiring software engineers. Like, how is this astrology Instagram account needing to hire software engineers? But it's a bit, like, they're a big business of astrology. And they pump out a lot of content. And this one is a Libra to-do list. And so we can both relate and decide (laughs) how accurate it is. A, consider cooking an elaborate breakfast, start another book you won't finish, then spend an hour curating a playlist to listen to while you run a 20-minute errand, meet cute at the neighborhood cafe, ask friends for advice until someone tells you what you want to hear, browse Etsy for home decor you can't afford, eight-step skincare routine before bed, and finally, put off sending an important text for another day because you'll feel more decisive tomorrow. Spoiler, you won't. And so it resonated with me when I first saw it. I can't even speak. Just, it's <laughs> like, you know me, man. You're inside right? my head. I'm not a skincare person. I will say my... Same. That was fine. My bedtime routine like, is not... very simple. It is yes. go to bed. But <laughs> that... holy crap, the rest of it rings so, so true. Yeah. I have just like piles of books that I've started. You 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 finish a lot of books. I do, though, but like so I haven't one. finished a book in almost a month, and it is like oh. it hurts my heart. And then I just you know feel this A plus student pressure on myself to like <laughs> read a book. You yep. know, it's yep. and it stops being my pastime. There's this wine shop in Portland, Oregon. They do a wine pack for each of the astrological signs, the That's... Libra pack and the whatever the Sagittarius pack and stuff. And I thought about doing something like that at the shop, but I don't know enough about astrology. And then in my true Libra nature, I was like, but which one would be the right choice? And then I just sat there 
and went back and forth about those things. Yeah. This is why I believe that Leos are good for Libras because Leos are the bold lion types. Oh, is that? Okay. And so my husband just is like, just make a decision, woman. <laughs> like, go forth. And I'm like, okay. So. Yeah, it's fun when they match up with what you feel. And it's validating and we're going to have to talk about the Enneagram sometime, Andy. Oh, man. So this week's He's astrology, we'll bring in the Enneagram sometime soon. Enneagram is trending. And remember, people, if you want to, you know, send us questions or comments about anything we're talking about, including the Enneagram, that would be great. Yeah. Also, this reminds me of the t- my favorite, I think my all-time favorite wine customer question slash their guidance they were looking for was, it was like a random Friday night, person comes in. Mm, early 20s, probably. And she asks, I'm going to a blood moon ceremony. Do you have wine for that? <laughs> like, yes. Does this person really what did you think you... there's wine for a, like, particular for a blood moon ceremony? What'd you sell her? Uh, I think I might have gone to the Heretiques because it had the stars. Yeah, on. sure. Like, like, or, or what was something biodynamic? Yeah. I forget. That makes sense. I think it was the Heretiques, though. That makes sense. But that was funny to me where people, I think there's like a certain part of the wine. People are like, well, I think there's wines for everything. Yeah. And they, I guess there is. Right. There could be wines. I bet there actually is a wine for blood moon ceremonies that we don't It is. Stock. It is. Or, or it's like, yeah, it's the heretique, right? Because you, yeah. you, you said it was. And now for our aperitif, a little bit of knowledge to wet your palate. As I launched this podcast, I started listening to as many podcasts as I could to see what other people are doing across a wide spectrum of industries, about a wide spectrum of topics, to see what inspired me and what spoke to me in terms of format and voice and that kind of thing. And I am supremely taken with Brene Brown, as I expect a lot of people are. I don't think I'm sharing anything new with y'all about how wonderful she is, but this week's episode of Unlocking Us featured two women, Aminatu So and Anne Friedman, about their book, Big Friendship. And I just wanted to plug that episode. At one point in the podcast, they talk about what makes friendships work and how friendships are just as demanding of our time and attention as marriage, as our jobs, those kinds of things. And they talk about the fact that any friendship that doesn't take a lot of work is a superficial friendship. That has just been playing again and again in my mind. One of the things that I am so excited about with the Table Wine podcast is that I get to connect with all of you who I do consider friends, but also that I get to see my dear friend Andy every week and that we get to talk about something that we both love and that we get to have the kinds of conversations that we haven't had a chance to have in the last year or two since we've just kind of each been doing our own busy things. It's a set aside precious time, I think, for both me and Andy. And I hope that that resonates with you, that there are those friendships in life that need our love and attention because the rewards are so, so very worth it. So I say use this podcast maybe as an excuse to reconnect with a friend, Uh, maybe get the same wines that we're drinking and drink with a friend, or maybe you both have them and then you can chat about the podcast or something like that. I just think that friendship is something that we now know after the pandemic we can't overlook and we need to nurture. So cheers to you and cheers to all of your friends. This week, we're going to combine our two segments. So it's time to both pop the cork 
and decant. I decided to combine the talking about the wine and talking about the movie because I picked wines that go so much hand in hand with the movie that I feel like we can't talk about one without the other. So this week's movie was what, Andy? This week we watched Som, S-O-M-M. Documentary from 2012. It is about a group of people who are studying for their master's sommelier exam and it follows a handful of people, but three people more closely than the others. And you see them kind of in the weeks leading up to the exam, studying together, tasting group, and then you actually get to see them. I mean, I guess you don't see them take the exam, but you see them in their hotel room before and then afterwards talking about it. My long view of this was like the filmmaker had this group of friends that were trying to do the song test. And it's like, ooh, I could film you all. And it would be fascinating. And it's really just some footage of them doing their study group together, drinking wine together, interviews with them, and a lot of talking to the female partner of these men. It was like a pretty male-dominated, like, focus of these men. And then the women were the, like, partners. They're like, oh, they're so funny. They get together and they're super serious about drinking and they get crazy. Yeah. <laughs> and it works. It's super successful. This movie is super. It spawned two sequels. I will say you haven't seen the other ones, have you? No. Have you? I have. I was so reluctant to watch these movies because I felt like I didn't need to watch a bunch of wine bros be bros. But then, then a pandemic happened. And so I was like, I'll watch kind of whatever, anything. <laughs> and now I rewatched the first one this week in prep for today. And it's still wine bros being bros for sure. There's mm -hmm. no doubt about that. But I felt like I was able to get more out of it on the second watch because I was prepared for the over the top nature of what it's like to sit in on a tasting group like that. But then the second two, the other documentaries, I think really take it to a very interesting place. Do the other ones follow the same people? Yes. Not just those people, but they do follow them a bit. So you can kind of see what happens afterwards. It's not just another group of people t testing for the song exam. I phoned myself as the movie was wrapping up and you begin to see who passes, who doesn't. I was immediately Googling to right. know what happened to them because I did feel attached i connected like i cared about what happened to these people yeah <laughs> Which... if we're gonna keep talking so i need to drink some wine because oh, i get shit to say about this <laughs> yeah so, okay what are we okay, drinking so if you haven't seen the movie psalm i think you really you should watch it i mean that's the yeah, point of this podcast is we're picking uh, yes. movies we think you should watch i think yes i guess we'd be honest if we didn't really like the movie so in one of the very first scenes in the movie you watch one of the people named Ian, Blind Taste. And Ian has this very fast stream of consciousness way of blind tasting. And, and if you've never seen somebody go through the psalm grid, it's an intense little verbal explosion. It's the yeah. it's the color and the viscosity and the sweetness and the body. And, and then it's just like oh, one after the other, things they smell and things they taste. So it, early in the movie, there's this scene of Ian tasting a wine. Wine one is a white wine, clear, star bright. There's no evidence of gas and or flocculation. And he starts with like light, lime candy, crushed apples, green melon, green color. pineapple, melon rind. Of like this lime candy, lime zest, <sighs> crushed apples, underripe green mango, underripe melon, melon Seems skin. like word association at a point. It yeah, absolutely is. Pineapple. His mind went to a map of green fruit and then he just like literally said everything he could think of. Green mango, green papaya, whatever. 
and then, he's, really then he starts on this freshly open can of tennis balls. White floral is almost like a fresh cut flower, white flowers, white lilies, no evidence of oak. There's a kind of a fresh like that freshly opened can of ten tennis balls and like, uh, <laughs> seriously, and uh, fresh new rubber hose I get. <laughs> and that to me yep. is like Structure. record scratch. Like, yep, that is what everybody thinks wine professionals talk like. <laughs> what the hell does that mean? What is that? And why would I want that in my glass? If at the shop I told someone that something tasted like a garden hose, I don't think they'd be super into that idea. Possible countries Australia, age ranges one to three years. I think this can only be one thing. Uh, this wine is from Australia. This wine is from South Australia. This wine is uh, from Clare Valley, 2009 Riesling High Quality here's, Producer. Here's the deal. So the wine that Ian is talking about is a Riesling from the Clare Valley region of Australia. So that is what Andy and I are drinking. I don't know which wine Ian drank, but we are drinking Clare Valley Riesling so that we can experience the freshly cut garden oh, hose for ourselves. <laughs> I mean... Is that that much better than, say, pencil shavings? I mean, what? No, I know. I know. Connor and I had this debate earlier. Connor said you would say petrol to someone. And he's like, which, first of all, is pretentious because we don't say petrol in the United States. We say gasoline. So why do you think it's okay to say petrol? And I was like, oh, because somebody taught me to say petrol. This is very exciting. Okay. Well, watching this, I was like, we need to recreate some of this tasting experience. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm here to watch and hear you do the whole stream of consciousness. I can try. <laughs> it's really hard to think aloud what you're saying because there's some amount of having to think about what it is you're drinking and saying it at the same time. It's pretty impressive, like a brain verbal linkage. Like, Yeah. So let's just be clear for the audience. I am not a sommelier. And mm, I yes. know. Didn't we cover this well, in an earlier episode? Yeah, we talked yes, about it. I, I introduced so. myself as such. I am not a certified SOM. I have, for other jobs, been part of tasting groups, but I have not tasted in a group anything near what the guys on the documentary are doing. So please do not think I'm trying to, like, equate myself with them or put myself on their level. The first blind tasting that I ever sat down to for a job, I was like, it smells like red wine. I don't have anything to say. And I was just sitting there like, what in the world are they talking about? I felt so out of place and like I should lose my job. Did you have to do a blind tasting to get the job? No. Or this was, okay. No, it was weekly training. And so we okay. all sat down and tasted together. And it happened that at that juncture in time at that restaurant, I think there were five or six of us on staff and one other woman besides myself. Mm. And I won't say that it was like a, it was not like a boys club kind of vibe. It just happened that everybody else were men and they were all pretty well versed in blind tasting. And they were all friends. And so I really felt like I didn't belong. And it made me shut down. But at least I had the piece of paper and I was able to write down things. And so the first one I ever did, I was like, no, nah, it smells like red wine. I'm never going to get there. And then, you know, just a few weeks later, I was able to start picking up on more nuanced flavors and aromas. But to have to do it verbally, I think, is an intense thing that I've never participated in. So we're going to, should we do it? I, yeah, I think we should try if you're watching this and you don't know much about wine, you're like, oh, wow, they're just deconstructing this glass of wine into a million parts. Some of it is just checking boxes. They have a checklist in their mind, and it's just checking those boxes in a way that I think looks more intimidating than it is. Yeah. Not that a lot of it isn't. Yeah. There's this, you know, there's this like little tiny scene that I, I wrote down. Rajat Par is one of the 
um, Master Psalms, who's just briefly interviewed in this documentary. He shows back up in the other parts of the series. But Raja talks about the point of this blind tasting and doing all of this is so that you can describe a wine to a table so that they can imagine what it tastes like. I don't think that that's Mm. talked about very much in the documentary, but that really resonated at least with me. Like, why the hell would you do this? Like, what is the point of this? And the idea is that you would get so good at tasting and perception that then you can talk about a wine to someone who's never had it and describe it in such beautiful detail that they can decide for themselves, like, that one sounds good or that one sounds good. Which is, again, why I always take umbrage at using words that don't mean anything to people. Are you going to say that to a table? Are you really going to straight up tell a table that it smells like tennis balls? Maybe you are. If a dude in a suit told me a wine smelled like tennis balls, I'd be like, okay, dude. Cool. <laughs> Molly's getting ready. Her nose is in that glass. Although now, you know you what? It's like it. totally the power of um, suggestion because holy shit, does it smell like tennis balls? Oh. It like, oh. <laughs> like, it like. You're right. It You're really right. does, though. That's amazing. So everybody needs to get themselves a bottle of Clear Valley Riesling and smell it because it's amazing. So yeah. I would go down the lime train. I'm not going to be able to do it, you know, quite the same. But yeah, I, I definitely was say tart and that's the lot. Yeah. yeah, I would definitely go like the lime zest, key lime, pineapple. Yeah, all that tropical fruit. It's like green. <laughs> Just watching you drink. I like this. <laughs> I know. Pineapple, tropical fruit, mm-hmm. um, pa- Galapagos. Papaya. Um, <laughs> Did you say Galapagos? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, like green papaya salad. Like Thai, Thai green papaya salad, right? Lime juice and green papayas. Mm. But also I'm on a tennis court. Grapefruit loss. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I feel like it's about like latching on to something first and that once you have a thing, yeah, you can go from there. Yeah. And start descending into whatever other things that's related to. I'm, yeah, I'm struggling to find the first thing that I want to. That's not something you've said. That's okay. Mm-hmm. You told me I had to do it. You don't have to do it. Mm-hmm. You have to do it with the next wine. Oh, there we go. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I mentioned the power uh, suggestion. Like See, that's like very th- real. And that's one of the reasons oh. that I don't love to tell people exactly what they're going to taste or, you know what I mean? Like I want to give them a sense of the wine. So like citrusy with great acidity. And this wine is bone dry in case y'all are worried. Telling me you won't drink Riesling because it might have some sweetness to it. This wine is super dry. Like those mm. are the kinds of qualities that I would talk about to a person, I would not list all of those things I just said because yeah. I would be overwhelmed if somebody said all those things to me. Exactly. Yeah. See, I get visualizations when I'm freaking like this to me is like a sunset or a sunrise mm. on a beach. Yeah, there's something very sounds, salty. About there's it. a beach ball bouncing along. <laughs> oh, yeah, there we go. There we go. We get to it. Yeah, somebody mm-hmm. in the and then movie mm-hmm. mentions pool toy as a thing. Yeah, it does have that. I guess it's Coming from that fresh tennis ball thing, like an oiliness mm-hmm. that, or like a rubbery, but like a, in a really pleasant way, mm-hmm. like the buoyancy of this wine as it like glides across your palate. I love it. That's a beautiful one. This is good. This is very good experience. Yeah. Isn't this it is. That's great. Yeah. yeah I, the mouthfeel. Great mouthfeel. It does feel. have a, it does. <laughs> Has some viscosity. There we go. See, look, mm-hmm. we can say all Dang. our wine words. We can sound so smart. Uh, medium high viscosity. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to drink and talk about yeah. more. Yeah. What? I have thought, I have my thoughts on like watching this and the task at hand for them. I like the goal that you mentioned of it's to describe people at a table what the wine's going to be like in the best terms possible, which is the goal as a wine seller. You try, it's always about communicating what the wine experience will be like. Right. But I also think the test that they're taking, it is about 
figuring out how you can remember how to place any wine that you're going to taste in the world. And so if you come up with freshly cut garden hose, that it's absurd, but that's helpful if you, if you only associate freshly cut garden hose with Vignet from the Rhone, because you're just trying to associate it. So it's so specific. So the next time you have this wine, you think, oh, this is that one super specific thing. And that connects to this place. That is amazing. We're going to have to talk about that with our second wine. So can we hold that thought? Because okay. I really love that idea. Do you know the idea of a memory palace? Yes. Yes. Yeah. So like that, I think it's actually Ian, the guy who goes on this whole little rubber garden hose thing. He, he kind of talks about that a little bit in terms of how can you remember all of this information? Because in addition to the blind tasting, the movie does show the guys having to learn just an absurd amount of knowledge. So much memorization. And the, really, the only way that you can do that is whether you know you're constructing a memory palace or not, you have to construct mm-hmm. a memory palace. And so you... Andy just created one for us, right? Where you were creating like a sunrise at a beach with a beach ball. Tropical fruits are there. Mm-hmm. And so now if I ever need to recall Clear Valley Riesling, I will see that in my head and it'll come to me more quickly, which is the yeah. idea of kind of tasting like this. I do think that there's some acknowledgement of the beauty of what they're doing, of being more mindful, being more present, tasting more intelligently. Yeah. That I think sounds to a non-professional as highfalutin and who cares. And I completely understand. Like I said, I liked this movie more on the second watch than on the first watch. Because on the first watch, I was like, oh my God, mm. I can't watch them. <laughs> this is so painful. I'm going to jump shift here. So you mentioned the <laughs> no. you mentioned the girlfriends and the significant others. Yeah. And yeah. I was just reminded of military wives or work widow, kind of the woman who's left behind because her... Uh-huh. spouse is off. My husband is not an attorney, but he took the New York bar exam. And I could relate to these women very much. That is what, mm. that's what we were doing. And it's a good deal you make with your partner. That, yep. I'm going to just make all the coffee. <laughs> just yeah. going to, you know, help you through this however I can. Which I think is really fascinating. The whole thing of like show, don't tell. Yeah. This to me is very tell, tell, tell. Instead of showing with the daily life of following them for 12 hours on a Tuesday to see how wine fits into their world, it's more about them interviewing and saying, oh, yeah, I'm always thinking about this. What does your actual life look like right now? How does it I want to see how your life is shaped around this test versus people just telling me. And I actually want to see also how is your life shaped around wine in terms of actual enjoyment because Mm. I do think it's unfair to judge these people on these three weeks. I can acknowledge that these were probably the three of the most stressful weeks of these people's lives. Yeah, they're fully obsessed with something that most of us don't pay that much attention to. It's very Mm -hmm. easy to, I think, to kind of poke fun about it a little bit or whatever, but they were generous enough to (laughs) let people watch their lives, which, you know, yes, now they all have, I think, healthy careers because of it, but uh-huh. Yeah, right. I know. I know Madison that part. Park, you know, right? so it's that, not like, like, oh, they made such a huge sacrifice or anything like that. But I would like to know more about do you like wine or are you doing this for the money or for the prestige? Like I said, I know that it's the worst time in their lives. So maybe they're not going to sit there and talk about wine in a lovely way. But it's one of the things that has always rubbed me the wrong way with a certain segment of the wine profession. Because I just think you're just in this to make money or you're just in this because you decided not stockbroking. <laughs> I don't really believe you. Yeah, I had the same question, frustration, especially one of them. Is that Dustin? The one who said he was an athlete? Right? No, he it's like Brian. A Brian was the Brian. athlete. 
okay. And he was like, I've only been doing this for a year. I'm just really competitive. And I wanted to do something else competitive. And you're like, oh, okay. Like you're just, which is fair. But also I think it's a warning to people who see this and think, oh, maybe I should become a sommelier. Is like, if you love wine, that is going to be different than doing this, which is like desensitizing you to it because you're just so obsessed with every detail of minutiae. Like I'm imagining a training to be a medical doctor. You might love helping people and are fascinated with anatomy, but then by the time you're through all your residencies, you become this robot. Of, yeah. <laughs> so I was wondering too, like, do these people love wine? They seem to be drinking a lot of it and it seems like they enjoy it, but they don't talk about the joy of wine. No. And I know that's not the point of the test, but of all the things that I have problems with when it comes to the court of master sommeliers, that is not, that, that's really low on my list of things that I have problems with. <laughs> Should we make a list? We're going to get here for it. We, yeah, we'll get there. Before we leave our Riesling, is there anything else you want to say about it? Oh man, this is a Riesling where I'm reminded that people don't necessarily try all Rieslings. And going back to the first episode where I talked about the first wine that I fell in love with, which is a German Riesling and had some sweetness to it, such a different wine than this yeah. and both so phenomenal. Yeah. I think of it as a great example that you can't just try one variety. Like you can't try one soft blanc. You can't have one Pinot Noir and decide, oh, I like that grape. It's going to vary tremendously depending on where it's from and the producer. I mean, it's why I loved you when I first met you because you were <laughs> like, I'm going to drink it all. Like, I'm just going <laughs> to taste everything and then I'll be able to talk about stuff. Because if you yep. just are like, I know I like dry Riesling and that's all I ever want to drink. That's a totally OK place to stay personally. But <laughs> if you want to really explore it or really understand where it fits in the spectrum of things, it helps to be open. I am reminded that last episode we were talking about the movie Uncorked. One of the reasons that we did this movie right after Uncorked is because in Uncorked, this guy goes from zero to master psalm in a hot second. But also in that movie, they say that you're trying to guess the producer of the wines. Yeah. And then watching the psalm documentary, you are trying to pick the place. You're trying to pick the grape. You're trying to pick the vintage. All of, I mean, that's impossible. Yeah. That's impossible to do in the first place. But... Then on top of it, no, you're not necessarily going to know the winery. So that's just my little yeah. plug for reality versus fiction. Which, comparing this to last week's movie, it just made me wish that movie was made following the actual way becoming a psalm works. I would have loved to see how the dynamic could have happened where he was joining a wine study group. And that to me would have been more interesting rather than this weird wine school where it's like, oh, you go through this and then you take a test at the end. Right. And if you've done everything we've taught you, you'll pass. Mm -hmm. It's like, no, no, no. And how much wine you have to be around, right? There's a scene in the movie where they're at their blind tasting group and they just have something like 15 or 20 bottles open. Yeah. And you just have to. It's the only way you're going to learn in this fashion. Yes. Which also brings up the point of like, that's expensive, right? Where's the money coming from for these people to do all of this? As always, something on well, my mind. If you're working in the industry, you, you probably have more access to wine, right? You but, probably have more access to wine. And if you are at the master psalm level, you're already at the advanced psalm level. You are in some capacity working in the industry. And so it behooves your employer to True. have an MS on staff. So you could be getting a stipend. You could be getting a sick discount. Like True. you'd be having mentors who are going to help you along. It's yeah. not for the normal person. It's no, it's just not. But there's a lot of questions. I think any curious viewer will have right? is like wait how do all how did all of this just happen for you because like, it does start like 18 days or something yeah. before the test they're at the final lap and they're 
just it's go time. doing the final thing. Yeah. yeah, there is one scene where they're each tasting the same wines with one of their MS mentors individually. And they intersplice each of the guys tasting the same wines mm-hmm. and to hear what the different people are thinking. And it, it is so interesting to hear them. And I think in both scenarios, it's three people. And in both scenarios, two people think one thing and one person thinks another thing. And they draw very different conclusions from each other. And it, I, I really loved that scene. I thought that was enough for me. I agree. I love that scene. I wanted more of that. Yeah, I agree. Like... Let's move on to the next one. Let's start. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 Pour. I think we can keep on talking. Yeah. Okay. So now we are on to wine number two. <laughs> what a time. Oh. I'm going to make you go first. Oh my God. This is too much pressure. No, it's not. Come on. I'm out of my wine drinking shape. I'm trying to get back in. <laughs> okay. Look we'll at a big powerful nose mm-hmm. black and blue fruit yeah that might be first and blueberry <laughs> that's great really try to think like that like, no it's great my so much of wine drinking i think is like tip of the tongue experiences right like, oh what is that totally I, that's the whole point of it and then you tie it to something you do remember so i'm very much like overripe black cherry mm-hmm. um, <laughs> licorice like black licorice i should be more specific in that not twizzler what brand of black licorice? I definitely have said Twizzler before on tasting notes for a wine. Yeah. Black licorice, dirt, wet earth. That's, yes. Sweet basil. There's like a, a vanilla extract, almost booziness at first sip. Then it's balanced, incredibly well balanced on the palate. Juicy, mm-hmm. right? Like yep. Very balanced. Yeah. Yeah. You want to know why I picked this wine? Yeah. So this wine is the 2016 Remieri, Lindista Remieri. Vino dos de San Vicente de la Sierra. All of those are lots of words. It's Rioja. What do those mean? Yeah. It's Rioja. So it is Tempranillo from Rioja, Spain, from one of my top this is... two producers. I'll put him in the, I'll, I'll say two. Ooh. I'll say of, t- all, of everywhere? No, but I'm in Rioja. Okay. But oh, okay, in, yeah, of everywhere, like... anywhere, he's in my top 10. Okay. So this I mean... is Telmo Rodriguez who. I could do a whole podcast about how much I love Telmo, but we could do that <laughs> someday. I love Telmo so much, but I picked this wine because of the mm-hmm. apex of the movie is the guys, they have all taken their test. Then they have 30 hours and they have to sit around and wait to find out if they pass or not. And so all they do is sit around and say, would you call for wine number one? Would you call for wine number two? They can't yep. stop. And it's amazing because there are two people who say that they called Rioja for the last of the Reds and mm-hmm. no one else agrees with them. Yeah. Right. And yeah. there's a lot of back and forth. And yeah. Yeah. I'm just, maybe you'll say it. So I'm going to let you say what I'm thinking. No, you go. I'm thinking about the oak where they call out, did you get oak? Did you get a, a, did you a get, new American oak? Did you get right? a new it's American about- oak? Right. And I was like, oh, man, is that? The, I didn't know that was the telltale sign of Rioja. So the telltale sign of Rioja is that dill leather, that new American oak. Except dot, 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 when the Rioja isn't aged in new American oak. And so I picked this wine because Telmo doesn't age his wines in American oak. He ages his Riojas in French oak. 
I should uh, back up and say that the Court of Master Psalms never tells you what the wines are that were in the test. Mm -hmm. They don't tell the people who took the test. They never tell them what they got right. You just have to get a certain amount of points and then you pass. So it could very well be that the two people who called Rioja were wrong, but we'll leave it open-ended in that regard because I don't know the answer to that. But the ones who didn't pick Rioja for that wine, they were so obsessed with American oak. And I was like, but there are plenty of Riojas that don't take on those flavors. I shouldn't say plenty, but there are some. And this would be one Which, of them. Could it have been the case where they were choosing between a Rioja and I think someone else that goes with Barolo, right? But that's what I think they went. I think somebody did Barolo and somebody did Brunello. So if it sounds like we're all saying foreign gibberish words to you, those are two. Barolo and Brunello are two different regions in Italy. And there it would be more common to have a wine that doesn't have oaky, cedary kind of notes to it. And so I think that's what steered a lot of people that way. So earlier when you said, Andy, that you make this correlation in your head and you start to learn something, I thought it was so interesting because in the case of the Clear Valley Riesling, that worked, right? That smells mm -hmm. like garden hose. And now I know that Clear Valley Riesling smells and tastes like garden hose. But if you get too tied to that, you could get totally screwed because they, yeah. the people who are putting together that blind tasting yeah. are so aware that that's what people think about Rioja. Yeah. Right. So anyway, that's, that's why I poured this. <laughs> this is good. I kind of knew it was Rioja going into this. And so I don't, but it doesn't not taste like Rioja. It tastes Spanish. It's not confusing. It definitely tastes like Tempranillo. I think it's mm -hmm. super pure in terms of that flavor. I thought that'd be fun. That's great. Um, it's great. Are you comfortable with me talking about my problems with the Court of Masters? Yeah, I would love to hear a litany of problems. <laughs> I'm not going to go into it too much, but one of the people in the movie, I, I don't want to give a spoiler. Okay, here's what I'm going to say. One of the people in the movie stepped down from being a part of the Court of Master Psalms. Oh. Last summer, the summer of 2020. And he did so because the Court of Master Psalms refused to speak up on behalf of Black Lives Matter. Oh. And he was not the only person. There were other people who stepped down. And the court of Master Psalms tried to take that stance of we're not a political organization, so we're going to stay neutral. And the people who stepped down were like, this is not a time to be neutral. This isn't something you can be neutral about. Also, wow. there's a really wonderfully written New York Times article from about a year ago in which a number of women talk about the sexual harassment that they faced at the hands of the court of Master Psalms. One person in particular who showed up in the movie, I had read the article when it first came out. And then when I rewatched, I didn't reread the article until just before we started recording today. And I'm pissed because, you know, in the movie, the person seems like a nice guy. Who is it? It's one of the mentors. Hey. It's one of the, the guys who comes in at, at the end and does some interview on the camera. Okay, yeah. There yep. are a lot of them. People in the movie are part of all of these allegations. So there are those two big things. They're not willing to speak up on behalf of social justice. And they are very clearly institutionally treating women terribly. And then on top of it, there was a cheating scandal a few years ago in which one person was known to be cheating and they threw out everybody's test results and they made everybody retake the test. Oh, yeah, I remember that. And I happened to meet one of those guys the week before he was taking his test. He came to Table Wine on a sales call oh. and he was so excited and, you know, he got a champagne saber with his name and he was so excited and then he had to hand it back in. 
oh. and retake the test. So I was already not in love with the, them as an organization. And I'm like, mm -hmm. so not into them as an organization. So I find this trio of documentaries a little challenging because I think it can be super interesting to somebody outside of my industry to peek in on the top tier of the industry. And that's pretty cool. But then to also know that not even all that behind the scenes, just no. they're maybe not these specific people, but that the organization as a whole is not great. That, that makes sense. <laughs> it's not like the purpose of this, but it does at least begin to remove the veil of mystery and holiness of a sommelier where they have the first American sommelier. Fred and Dane. Then Fred Dane. So he does that. He's the first American. It's a European court. And then comes to America, comes back and is like, oh, I'll just build a court here in America, essentially. That's my take. Mm -hmm. And y you're going to get all the nastiness of just human beings that are striving to be elite wine drinkers. And then again, where I feel like the wine world feels like there are these untouchable rules where it's the good and bad of wine is written in holy scripture, but it's not. It's just upheld and maintained by people. Yeah. Mostly this, you know, elite organization of master sommeliers and they're choosing who else gets entry. So I don't, it creates the human element. It is all just constructed by people. It trickles down from there. It's kind of my takeaway. Yeah. And I am disappointed well, I don't think that a documentary needs to change all the things. I think that just like when we watched Uncorked last week, I was very disappointed that the movie doesn't even acknowledge race or gender. And I also, this is something that I'm struggling with just in like all aspects of my life, the art yeah. and artist conversation, but it's nine years old. And in 2012, would I have had a problem with that? Probably not. I would have just said, yeah. Most Psalms are white men and that's, you know, that's just the way that it is. Or maybe I would have been like, yeah, it's kind of problematic that there aren't more women, but shrug my shoulders and walk away. And now I look at it. It's not okay. Right? Yeah. It feels very obvious. Oh, this is about mostly white men. There is a black man mm -hmm. featured. Mm -hmm. And then there is in one of the scenes when they're doing the drinking study group, there is a woman who's in advanced sommelier, but they don't, they don't interview, interview her. her. I was like, does she not want to participate? Like, don't you want some gender diversity in who you're following here? Or can you at least acknowledge, you know, that's all I'm saying, yeah. right? Like, can you acknowledge yeah. it? Can any of the guys talk about it? I, I mentioned race and gender, but I should also mention class because we were talking about the access to this yeah. kind of wine very clearly. This is not a middle class proposition. No, that's why I was like, fat. I'm like, who are these people's, what are their history? Yeah. Tell me more about why they got into this yeah. because I'm always going to be. Yep confused yep but that said <laughs> yeah. it's a good watch i can imagine people who have never in their lives participated in wine blind tasting getting a total kick out of this and just being like okay let's put some wines in brown paper bags and pretend to be these people and i think you'd have a really fun time i do think you could have a lot of fun maybe you start out as thinking you're gonna make fun but i think you'd mm -hmm. end up having fun <laughs> hey yeah whenever i've facilitated tastings with friends I think they come into it taking it as a joke and they quickly are like, oh, this is interesting. And they want to participate. Right. And it's fun to try and figure out what what notes there are and what notes you can make up. And, and you've always been very good at like, say what's on your mind, which is a skill. It's hard to gain confidence in what you think you're tasting is what you're tasting. Right. Oh, yeah. Uh, Speaking of which, you said you like to visualize wines. What's your visualization of this wine? I'm getting open Midwestern fields that are upturned. 
like open plains ish. Yeah. Gloomy open plains, though. You're reminding me of my college time at Iowa. Gloomy open plains. <laughs> I like it. Can I tell it's you, fun. my visualization yeah, yeah. is a dinner party scene, like a table, mm-hmm. like a bird's eye view photo. Let's see, we're halfway through dinner. And so like lots of half-eaten food and there's glasses everywhere and candles and yeah. like the whole thing, like this wine is just to me conviviality. I like, yes, I get that. I think the 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 easiness of drinking this, it's a quaffable. It is. Thing. I mean, it has tannins, but it's so easy to drink, right? Get and it is me, 14%. So the fact that, that we're party. recording this in the afternoon is going to make for an interesting rest of our days. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no time for a nap. I know. Uh, nap time. Beautiful. Yeah. Is there anything else we want to say about the movie or the wines? You said something earlier that made me think about wine and art. And you sit with a glass of wine for half an hour and it's an experience. And how art is similar. There's some art story and art educator types that are like, if you want to experience art, you should pick one piece of art at a museum and sit there for 30 minutes and look at it, which is not how we go to art museums. I think you just kind of take it all in as quickly as you can. But that wine is really similar to art that way, where if you just take your time with it and try to appreciate it and just let it sink in. And that is what I think builds those wine tasting skills. I think that's I beautiful. Think. I had a friend who is a museum curator and she was here getting her Ph.D. in art history. She looked straight down her nose at my taste in art because I love a Degas ballerina. I do. I like the Impressionists. And who doesn't? She doesn't. <laughs> there apparently is a whole movement within the art um, world in which the Impressionists are not well thought of. Okay. And let's actually try that all together. Last week when we were talking about Uncorked, I said that in movies, they always show wine professionals talking about the kinds of wines wine professionals would never drink. So I feel like they're so similar in terms of the vocabulary, where you feel like if you're not in that industry, I don't have the right words. And I have a degree in English. And so I feel like I can talk about books all freaking day. And I feel like I've had those words since high school. So yeah, all I'm thinking about is just barriers. We put up roadblocks to visceral things that should be able to just be appreciated. Yes. And like if the, yes. if the word is good, if the word is yummy, that's mm-hmm. a totally legit word, right? Or like pretty, you know, I look at a painting and I say, I like it. Like that's, hey man, that's really all that it comes down to at the end of the day. Exactly. I think this is a good point. I love it. <laughs> I feel like we got somewhere there. Here's one that Molly, the English major, I want to hear about a book you're excited to read. So it is book season in my house. My husband is the director of the Wisconsin Book Festival, and that takes place in a few weeks. So by the time this airs, it will have already happened. But in my house, it's all books all the time right now. So I just finished a graphic novel called Seek You by Kristen Radke, and it is about loneliness. It is so beautiful and super powerful in terms of the difference between being alone and lonely feeling of loneliness that permeates our culture even before the pandemic. It's really wonderful. So that is something that I just finished and loved. What about you, Andy? That's exciting. I like that you mentioned the graphic novel because we're still in October. It's the first week of October. So maybe when you're listening, it might be Halloween potentially. And there's a graphic novel called My Favorite Thing is Monsters by Emil Ferris. I've had it for a couple of years. I start it every October. Mm. It's a it's big. Mm. It's like a large book. 
with a lot of content on each page, but it's the perfect spooky style. I believe all of it was done in the regular notebook. And so you can see the lines on a notebook page that are presumably a child has drawn over, but it's these beautiful line drawings, like colored pencil, super spooky. And I'm going to say just because it is something that's on my mind is Matrix by mm. Lauren Groff, because I enjoy Fates and Furies and the fact that this new book is on the short list for the National Book Award makes me pretty excited. It has to be promising. And the plot seems pretty wonderful and ridiculous. A sort of estranged royal member joining a nunnery in like medieval times. And I don't know, that just sounds, I don't know what's going to happen. It sounds exciting. Thank you for listening. Be sure to tune in next week when we discuss Amy Poehler's Wine Country. The Table Wine Podcast is brought to you by me, Andy Stoiber, and Molly Moran. Special thanks to Craig Ely of Fieldnoise.com for his production consultation. Please review us wherever you listen. Liking, subscribing, and sharing wouldn't hurt too. Thanks for listening. Hope you tune in again soon.